Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books' brand values. Today we'll be continuing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. By Jules Verne. Chapter 14. A Note of Invitation. The next day was the 9th of November. I awoke after a long sleep of 12 hours. Conceal came, according to custom, to know how I had passed the night, and to offer his services. He had left his friend, the Canadian, sleeping like a man who had never done anything else all his life. I let the worthy fellow chatter as he pleased without caring to answer him. I was preoccupied by the absence of the captain during our sitting of the day before, and hoping to see him today. As soon as I was dressed, I went into the saloon. It was deserted. I plunged into the study of the shell treasures hidden behind the glasses. I reveled also in great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which although dried up, retained their lovely colors. Amongst these precious hydrophytes, I remarked some volatera, pevenera, delicate ceramides with scarlet tints, some fan-shaped agri, and some natabuli-like flat mushrooms, which at one time used to be classed as zoophytes, in short, a perfect series of algae. The whole day passed without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon did not open. Perhaps they did not wish us to tire of these beautiful things— The course of the Nautilus was east-northeast, her speed twelve knots, the depth below the surface between twenty-five and thirty fathoms. The next day, 10th of November, the same desertion, the same solitude. I did not see one of the ship's crew. Ned and Conceal spent the greater part of the day with me. They were astonished at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was a singular man ill? Had he altered his intentions with regard to us? After all, as Conceal said, we enjoyed perfect liberty. We were delicately and abundantly fed. Our host kept to his terms of the treaty. We could not complain, and indeed, the singularity of our fate reserved such wonderful compensation for us that we had no right to accuse it as yet. That day I commenced the journal of these adventures which had enabled me to relate them with more scrupulous exactitude and minute detail. I wrote it on paper made from the Zostera Marina. 11th November, early in the morning. The fresh air spreading over the interior of the Nautilus told me that we had come to the surface of the ocean to renew our supply of oxygen. 
I directed my steps to the central staircase and mounted the platform. It was six o'clock. The weather was cloudy, the sea gray but calm, scarcely a billow. Captain Nemo, whom I hoped to meet, would he be there? I saw no one but the steersman imprisoned in his glass cage, seated upon the projection formed by the hull of the pinnace. I inhaled the salt breeze with delight. By degrees, the fog disappeared under the action of the sun's rays. The radiant orb rose from behind the eastern horizon. The sea flamed under its glance like a train of gunpowder. The clouds scattered in the heights were colored with lively tints of beautiful shades and numerous mare's tails which betokened wind for that day. But what was wind to this nautilus which tempests could not frighten? I was admiring this joyous rising of the sun, so gay and so life-giving when I heard steps approaching the platform. I was prepared to salute Captain Nemo, but it was his second, whom I had already seen on the captain's first visit who appeared. He advanced on the platform, not seeming to see me. With his powerful glass to his eye, he scanned every point of the horizon with great attention. This examination over, he approached the panel and pronounced a sentence in exactly these terms. I've remembered it, for every morning it was repeated under exactly the same conditions. It was thus worded. Natron, Respock, Lorny Virch. What it meant, I could not say. These words pronounced, the second descended, I thought that the Nautilus was about to return to its submarine navigation. I regained the panel and returned to my chamber. Five days sped thus, without any change in our situation. Every morning I mounted the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual, but Captain Nemo did not appear. I had made up my mind that I should never see him again. When on the 16th November, on returning to my room with Ned in Conceal, I found upon my table a note addressed to me. I opened it impatiently. It was written in a bold, clear hand, the characters rather pointed, recalling the German type. The note was worded as follows. 16th of November, 1867. To Professor Aranax on board the Nautilus. Captain Nemo invites Professor Aranax to a hunting party, which will take place tomorrow morning in the forests of the island of Crespo. He hopes that nothing will prevent the professor from being present, and he will with pleasure see him joined by his companions. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. A hunt, exclaimed Ned. And in the forests of the island of Crespo, added Conceal. Oh, then the gentleman is going on terra firma, replied Ned Land. That seems to me to be clearly indicated, said I, reading the letter once more. Well, we must accept, said the Canadian. But once more on dry ground, we shall know what to do. Indeed, I shall not be sorry to eat a piece of fresh venison. Without seeking to reconcile what was contradictory between Captain Nemo's manifest aversion to islands and continents, and his invitation to hunt in a forest, I contented myself with replying. Let us first see where the island of Crespo is. I consulted the planisphere, and in 32 degrees, 40 minutes north latitude, and 157 degrees, 50 minutes west longitude, I found a small island, recognized in 1801 by Captain Crespo, and marked in the ancient Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, the meaning of which is the silver rock. We were then about 1,800 miles from our starting point, and the course of the Nautilus a little changed was bringing it back towards the southeast. I showed this little rock lost in the midst of the North Pacific to my companions. 
If Captain Nemo does sometimes go on dry ground, said I, he at least chooses desert islands. Ned Land shrugged his shoulders without speaking, and concealing he left me. After supper, which was served by the steward, mute and impassive, I went to bed, not without some anxiety. The next morning, the 17th of November, on awakening, I felt that the Nautilus was perfectly still. I dressed quickly and entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was there waiting for me. He rose, bowed, and asked me if it was convenient for me to accompany him. As he made no allusion to his absence during the last eight days, I did not mention it, and simply answered that my companions and myself were ready to follow him. We entered the dining room where breakfast was served. Monsieur Aranax, said the captain, pray share my breakfast without ceremony. We will chat as we eat, for though I promised you a walk in the forest, I did not undertake to find hotels there. So breakfast, as a man who will most likely not have his dinner till very late, I did honor to the repast. It was composed of several kinds of fish and slices of holothurdiae, excellent zoophytes, and different sorts of seaweed. Our drink consisted of pure water, to which the captain added some drops of a fermented liquor, extracted by the Kamshata method from a seaweed known under the name of Rhodominia palmata. Captain Nemo ate it first without saying a word. Then he began. Sir, when I proposed to you to hunt in my submarine forest of Crespo, you evidently thought me mad. Sir, you should never judge lightly of any man. But, Captain, believe me, be kind enough to listen, and you will then see whether you have any cause to accuse me of folly and contradiction. I listen. You know as well as I do, Professor, that man can live underwater, providing he carries with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. In submarine works, the workman, clad in an impervious dress, with his head in a metal helmet, receives air from above by means of forcing pumps and regulators. That is a diving apparatus, said I. Just so, but under these conditions, the man is not at liberty. He is attached to the pump, which sends him air through an India rubber tube, and if we were obliged to be thus held to the Nautilus, we could not go far. And the means of getting free? I asked. It is to use the Rue Quayral apparatus, invented by two of your own countrymen, which I have brought to perfection for my own use, and which will allow you to risk yourself under these new physiological conditions without any organ whatever suffering. It consists of a reservoir of thick iron plates in which I store the air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This reservoir is fixed on the back by means of braces, like a soldier's knapsack. Its upper part forms a box in which the air is kept by means of a bellows, and therefore cannot escape unless at its normal tension. In the Ruquayral apparatus, such as we use, two Indian rubber pipes leave this box and join a sort of tent, which holds the nose and mouth. One is to introduce fresh air, the other to let out the fowl, and the tongue closes one or the other according to the wants of the respirator. But I, in encountering great pressures at the bottom of the sea, was obliged to shut my head, like that of a diver in a ball of copper, and it is to this ball of copper that the two pipes, the inspirator and the expirator, open. Perfectly, Captain Nemo. But the air that you carry with you must soon be used. When it only contains 15% of oxygen, it is no longer fit to breathe. Right, but I told you, Monsieur Aranax, that the pumps of the Nautilus allow me to store the air under considerable pressure, and on those conditions, the reservoir of the apparatus can furnish breathable air for nine or ten hours. I have no further objections to make. I answered. I will only ask you one thing, Captain. 
How can you light your road at the bottom of the sea? With the Rumkorf apparatus, Monsieur Aranax, one is carried on the back, the other is fastened to the waist. It is composed of a Bunsen pile, which I do not work with bichromate of potash, but with sodium. A wire is introduced which collects the electricity produced and directs it towards a particularly made lantern. In this lantern is a spiral glass which contains a small quantity of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is at work, this gas becomes luminous, giving out a white and continuous light. Thus provided, I can breathe and I can see. Captain Nemo, to all my objections, you make such crushing answers that I dare no longer doubt. But if I am forced to admit the Roqueyrol and Rumkorf apparatus, I must be allowed some reservations with regard to the gun I am to carry. But it is not a gun for powder, answered the captain. Then it is an air gun. Doubtless, how would you have me manufacture gunpowder on board without either saltpreter, sulfur, or charcoal? Besides, I added, to fire underwater in a medium 855 times denser than air, we must conquer very considerable resistance. That would be no difficulty. There exist guns, according to Fulton, perfected in England by Philip Coles and Burley, in France by Fursey, and in Italy by Landy, which are furnished with a peculiar system of closing which can fire under these conditions. But I repeat, having no powder, I use air under great pressure, which the pumps of the Nautilus furnish abundantly. But this air must be rapidly used. Well, have I not my Ruqueyrol reservoir, which can furnish it at need? A tap is all that is required. Besides, Monsieur Aranax, you must see yourself that during our submarine hunt, we can spend but little air and but few balls. But it seems to me that in this twilight, and in the midst of this fluid which is very dense compared with the atmosphere, shots could not go far, nor easily prove mortal. Sir, on the contrary, with this gun, every blow is mortal, and however lightly the animal is touched, it falls as if struck by a thunderbolt. Why? Because the balls sent by this gun are not ordinary balls, but little cases of glass, invented by Lenebrock, an Austrian chemist, of which I have a large supply. These glass cases are covered with a case of steel, and weighted with a pellet of lead, they are real laden bottles into which the electricity is forced to a very high tension. With the slightest shock, they are discharged, and the animal, however strong it may be, falls dead. I must tell you that these cases are size number four, and that the charge for an ordinary gun would be ten. I will argue no longer, I replied, rising from the table. I have nothing left me but to take my gun. At all events, I will go where you go. Captain Nemo then led me aft, and in passing before Ned's and Conceal's cabin, I called my two companions, who followed immediately. We then came to a kind of cell near the machinery room in which we were to put on our walking dress. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today, while we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Brie Carlisle, and I hope you come back tomorrow for the next bite of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.